river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. Welcome back to the TrackQuest podcast. It's been a long time. Yes, it has. <laughs> Sorry, guys, it's been a little while. Yeah, we've just been trying to catch up, I guess. Spring clinging. Yeah, we've been busy. James has been moving. Yeah. Uh, family stuff. Just busy, busy. And uh, schedules haven't been clicking. We had a guy get sick on us. My buddy that we were doing one with last week got sick on us right before. So, sorry, guys. We're going to try to get back at a little, little bit more. So. We have uh, gotten creative, and we've got uh, some pretty cool guests lined up. Um, we're going to try to, uh, you know, take this thing to the next level for you guys. So I hope you guys enjoy what we have coming this summer. Yeah, um, we appreciate all the all our Patreon supporters, and that's going well. And everybody that's uh, sending us stuff to give away, we got a pile of stuff. So yeah, so let's. Let's give, we got a lot of stuff to talk about before this, uh, this awesome, uh, interview we just did, but let's, uh, let's give some stuff away. All right. So today we got Bob at Great Northern has, uh, sent us some hats and shirts. So we're going to give away, um, Great Northern hat and shirt and some addictive archery string silencers. We're, we picked two guys. We already did the little drawing, so thanks, Bob, at Great Northern. The hats are sweet. The shirt's got their new logo, the two trees on there. So hopefully whoever wins this wears a large shirt. <laughs> so we got, let me see, I wrote them down here somewhere, Matt Rick and Nick Prescott. Congratulations. Uh, goodies going your way. Thanks for uh, supporting us. We appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah. And if you guys don't know about, uh, the Patreon, go to, uh, tradquest.com and check it out. It's a place where you guys can help support the podcast. And, uh, in return, uh, we're doing these little giveaways and trying to, uh, help support the traditional archery community and keep this thing rolling. Yep. And for you guys that, uh, don't know about it. We have three tiers on there. And if you sign up for the, uh, more expensive tiers, we'll say, um, we got some discounts on there and those are, those are piling up. So, um, you got to be a member of Patreon to, to get the codes and stuff. But, uh, we got Liberty Longbows on there, uh, Big Stick Archery, Matt Webb, Bush Vests, Tough Head Broadheads, Buddy Andy over at Addictive Archery. So, uh, if you guys are looking to purchase some items, you know, for hunt season that's coming up and you want a sweet discount and you want to help out us, get on there and sign up. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash or patreon. Yeah.com forward slash track quest. I think it is. And, uh, or just go to our website. It's probably easier and it'll link you right up to it. So thanks yeah. everybody for supporting us. And if you want more incentive to become a supporter of the TradQuest podcast, we gave away a bow last month, and we're going to give away another bow next month. We're giving away. Tell what we're giving away, Bob. We have a bear archery 
Black Beauty with a matching Great Northern Quiver. Oh, it is so sweet. Yeah. Man, uh, I wish I could keep that one. Yeah, I've never shot one of those, but just feeling that thing, man, it seems like it'd shoot like a dream. Yeah, it looks like it's a tack driver for sure. So, uh, if you want to win the Black Beauty, uh, I think it's a 50-pounder with a matching Great Northern Quiver. Make sure you uh, check out our Patreon and become a supporter. Uh, we've got all kinds of cool stuff lined up for that this summer. Um, what else do we have going on out here in Oregon, Bob? Well, uh, we're right in the middle. We've been putting a lot of work in the last couple of years to try to uh, expand our traditional hunts out here. You guys that listen regularly know about that, but uh, it's go time right now. So we just had a commission meeting uh, a few weeks ago, and it went really well. Um, we got, I think we got through to some of the commission, but we're switching some new commissioners coming on board and all that. And so uh, we need our listeners' help. And uh, if you guys can help us out by shooting an email to the commission, to let us let let them know you support traditional archers of Oregon and the expansion of the traditional seasons, you can make it simple. If you only got a minute, just write that. If you have a lot of time, and you really want to get your point across, and uh, send them a good long email on, you know, the benefits of traditional seasons or whatever your thoughts are on technology, whatever. Send it over to them. Um, I'll yeah. read you the email address right now. We'll put pictures of this and all this stuff on our Instagram. We're going to have a big push here in the next couple months because um, right now they take public comment through emails. They take public comment. In July, there's going to be local meetings. Um, if you're in Oregon or close to Oregon, right across the border, check um, their website. They don't have the dates perfectly lined out yet. We got a rough draft that I'll post on our Instagram and stuff. Basically, I think the first meeting's like July 2nd down in Burns, and there's a few of them on that date, and they're just rolling through July. So check with your local office and get in on that local meeting and, uh, you know, let your voice be heard that you're supporting those. That'll help us a lot. Even though the commissioners aren't at those meetings, uh, the biologists are. The commissioners read the meeting notes, so all that stuff helps. Um, like I said, we'll we'll help out with that. But if you're if you do want to send an email, it's odfw.commission at state.or.us. And uh, that can you say that again? Can you say that again? Odfw.commission at state.or.us, and that'll go to the commissioners. And then if you want to. Send an email to the director of ODFW. I usually CC the director on there, and it's Kurt, C-U-R-T, dot Melcher, M-E-L-C-H-E-R, at state.org.us. So, yeah, get get on there. We have, um, just to let you guys know what's going on, we have, it's a complicated process, but ODFW put a guy in charge of proposing some the regulation changes. It hasn't, our regulations haven't been gone through in like 20 years, but to make a long story short or long story short, um, in the proposals, they have one new hunt, which is cool. It's the North Fork of the John Day wilderness. It's a five day basic extension on the season. It would be a draw hunt, like 50 tags, neat area, wilderness area, elk, a lot of elk. It'd be awesome because a lot of times our season ends right when the bulls really start kicking. 
So uh, it could be pretty dang good. And then we're going to keep our Trout Creek traditional hunt, um, but they want to, instead of making an unlimited controlled hunt, they want to regulate it to 300 tags, which is fine. There's usually not that many people that apply for it, but we're trying to talk them into just keeping it traditional only and making it a general hunt. So I know that sounds complicated to some people, but the reason they made it an unlimited hunt that you had to draw was for, so they could keep track of who was going there, how many guys were hunting it, et cetera, et cetera. But now we have mandatory reporting, so we don't need that. Um, so we're trying to get them to just make it a general season trad hunt. Cause and, it, and we're it, to simplify it. And so that, uh, non-residents like a lot of our listeners that want to travel to Oregon to have experience a traditional only hunt, uh, we want it to be available for everybody. Yeah. Because we have a really tight cap on non-resident tags, two and a half percent, I believe. And then, um, so that would severely limit your opportunity as a non-resident if you ever did want to come hunt mule deer in the trout creeks. So we're trying to talk them into not doing that. So if you are a non-resident, send that email and let them know that, you know, you go over there, you hunt it or you want to hunt it or you don't want that opportunity to be lost because it's kind of, I get what they were trying to do as far as getting rid of the unlimited thing, but I think they just took a step in there that they didn't need to. So, um, I spoke to him, the commission about that at the meeting. Hopefully we got through to him. So that's a big one. And then the biggest one probably is our Canyon Creek hunt, which is a week long. It's kind of the first week of season. They want to get rid of that hunt altogether because they're saying it's hard. It's, it's got a boundary issue. You know, it's 35 square miles, a little part of the Murders Creek unit, and it's just simpler just to get rid of it. Well, we're trying to get it to be extended the whole season. So we really need help on that one. Um, we spoke. And, we're, and we're standing on grounds of historic uh, value, yeah, if, uh, if, heritage. Yeah, if you guys that listen to this don't know, that was the first archery-only area west of the Mississippi. It started in 1935. So um, it's, it's yeah, it's it's got a lot of heritage. It's very, very important, very important to a lot of our members a lot of the guys that started tao and um the traditional archer Oregon that is and so we need your help we need you guys send emails so we don't lose that that would yeah that would if, not you, be good. if you guys live in new york city or florida we don't care where you live uh send them an email let them know what you think about it um so it would, it would help us out here and if you guys are are wanting uh more information on what we're doing out here in Oregon, uh, feel free to send us a, uh, an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to get anyone, uh, involved and, uh, make it a thing. Yeah, for sure. So that's how we, that's how we fix things. We make them, we, we get involved. So of course the, the final commission meeting is in Gold Beach. September 13th. How handy that is right in the middle of elk season. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then we'll know. And then the next go round, they're supposedly going to, they're proposing another deer and elk trad hunt on the West side of the state. So if all goes well, we could have four or five trad hunts in Oregon after next year, which would be awesome. But we need your guys to send in emails and go to your local meetings. If you're in Oregon, 
take the day off work, whatever you got to do, bribe your wife to get out of the house so you can go to that meeting. It's, it's important. So thank you. Yeah. And we're getting support from, uh, from the modern archery, uh, community as well on this. Uh, and it feels great. So I think, you know, folks, they've, they've kind of ran a little poll on it and, uh, Oregon, I guess, uh, hunters seem to, to feel it's good for, uh, uh, giving opportunity to a, uh, you know, an opportunity that may not be there with other uh, equipment. Yeah. Yeah. I think that little poll that Wayne Endicott did was like 76%. I think guys supported having some extended seasons, you know, for traditional archery. So yeah, that's a, times are changing. It's not, it's not a a fight. It's not us against them. It's not that it's just wildlife management. If we can, if we can have hunts that are low impact and create more opportunity, then let's do it. Let's, uh, amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. So, yeah. Anyway, enough on that. We harp on that all the damn yep. time. So yep. that's kind of our thing, but yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. What else? Uh, we that's, just, that's all. Oh, shirts and hats. We got, uh, new shirts and hats on our website. So yep. get on there, get them ordered, support us. They're awesome shirts, awesome hats. James has made down there at, uh, what's that? ENT Productions. Yeah, they make some yeah. good stuff. We got some uh, black hats with the new elk logo and some multi-cam ones. We're uh, we're running low on them, so get on there and get them. And then I think I, I clicked the little button that we can allow back orders. So if we do run out, just I think it'll automatically order. I don't, I'm not a computer whiz, and yeah, so that, hopefully that works. That, that <laughs> the new hats and shirts and sweatshirts are awesome. Got a, We've got a big bull elk on them. And that camouflage hat, it costs a couple extra bucks, but yeah, it's a really quality, like breathable, yeah, it's really nice. Yep. Yeah, it's a great hunting hat. Yeah. It is expensive though. We understand that, but they were expensive yeah. to have made. Mate. So. Yeah. But so yeah, definitely uh, support the podcast. Get a shirt or hat. Go to tradquest.com. We definitely appreciate it. Um, and if you guys are listening and you guys have a friend or a mentor, or just a local legend guy that uh, you want us to get on here, uh, please, tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. Send us an email. We love getting on the guys that no one knows about. Uh, that's kind of our thing. So keep us in mind on that. And uh, look forward to uh, spreading some more traditional bow hunting your guys' way this summer. Yep. So uh, speaking of that, today's guest we got on wrote a book that uh, I've been waiting on for 20-some years, 25 years. And uh heck of a guy, really good guy. He uh basically had to learn how to write before he did the book, and uh he did a heck of a job. If you guys haven't read the new Silvertip book by Mr. Bob Wendauer, it's awesome. Um, we had him on. We, we shot the crap a little bit, talked some Paul Schaefer stories, but we didn't want to let them all out. you got to read the book. So yeah www.shafersilvertipbows.com and get them ordered up. You're going to hear all about it on this one. And uh, if you younger guys are listening and you don't know who Paul Schaefer is or was and uh, you're like, blah, 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 he is he was a stud, just a stud. Wrestler, football player, I mean, just a tough a Michael Jordan of traditional bow hunting. Yeah, elves. yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, he yeah. was a he super was a cool athlete. Dude. And yeah. uh, the third, was he the 
third guy, I think Bob said to get the super slam or the not the super slam, the all all the wild sheep basically. Sheep Did it with yeah. a recurve back in the day when all those other guys were trying to do it with their compounds. It was so cool to see when I was growing up. It's just like yes, yes, yes. You know, we tried to get Dave, his son, on a few times. He's kind of a quieter dude, and we've been trying to line this interview up for a while, and it was just awesome to finally connect with Bob. Such a nice man who raised his took his kids to Montana and raised them uh, the right way. What what a great story! What a great guy! Yeah, heck yeah! And uh, to see the uh, impact that Paul had on his family growing up and. And, you know, Bob talked to us a lot about the impact he had on a lot of the other other kids and not just kids, people around him. It's local families. Yep. Just uh one of those one of those special people and it's too bad we lost him early and Yeah. So uh I hope you guys enjoy this one and if you don't uh if you haven't read the book like me, uh I can't wait to do it and uh, enjoy the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh welcome to the podcast. I want you to go ahead and just introduce yourself and uh, tell us a, a little bit about uh, how you got into uh, this wonderful lifestyle. Uh, which which lifestyle? The archery lifestyle? Yeah, traditional archery. Okay. Okay. I'm, I am Bob Windauer. I'm uh, 77 years old right now, and uh, I, uh, was, I'm a retired orthodontist. And I've always enjoyed writing uh, small things, and uh, it, it's just been something that's always been with me. I tend to write things down, and I think better that way. And um, when uh, when Paul passed away, um, a lot of people were asking for stories about Paul. And uh, Paul Schaefer's family just wasn't ready for a long time to let go of Paul. And so um, there was uh, really they didn't want anything done for a while. And then um, my son Dave, Dave Windauer, uh, said that he uh, was getting a lot of requests again. This was around 2004. Paul died in 93. And he was getting a lot of requests for someone to write about Paul. And I thought maybe I'll tackle it. I had recently retired and thought that I had time and uh, thought I knew a little bit about writing. So I I uh, asked Mrs. Schaefer if she would consider it now. She said, I need to think about it a little. She did, and also talked to uh, Paul's siblings, and they decided, yes, it was okay. So I started out with Mrs. Schaefer, and um, along the way, I uh, was forced to look back into my past quite a bit, and uh my past uh, with archery started out back uh, when I was about six years old. I can't remember exactly, but uh, it had to be around them, between six and eight. And um, I was at my grandmother and grandfather's house, and I had, for some reason, I had to go down into the basement, and it was dark in the um, evening. And uh, the basement stairway was kind of dark. They had one light bulb hanging uh, above the stairs and the um, the walls were naked walls. Uh, and this was south side of Chicago, and uh, just raw stone, old stone foundations uh, on the houses in that neighborhood, and then exposed uh, studs on the on the inside of the walls. 
and um, there was one light bulb lighting the stairway, and I started down the stairway, and that was always a spooky place because it usually was dark down in the basement. And uh, I saw uh, two bows and some arrows hanging between the studs just as I started down the stairs, and they were kind of mystical and uh, captivating in that uh, subdued light. And I asked Grandpa about them, and he said, I'll get them down for you. And he got them down and showed them to me and told me that um, he had uh, helped my dad make them when uh, my dad was in Boy Scouts for one of his scouting merit badges. And uh, uh, long story short, uh, the, the bows became mine and the arrows became mine, and I started plinking around with them. And I was uh, captivated by archery ever since, and that morphed into bow hunting along the way. Little boys like to shoot things, so I was using the arrows on everything I could find, and that led me in the direction of where I am now. Uh, does that help you a little bit? Yeah. yeah. How'd you end up in Montana? Um, Montana's another long story. Um, coming from the south side of Chicago and seeing the direction that Chicago was headed in. I, I really never was comfortable in the city. And, uh, when I was seven years old, my folks felt the same way I did. And, uh, my dad got into raising mink as a hobby. And, uh, we moved rural 10 miles south of the city limits of Chicago. And, uh, dad bought, uh, an old farmhouse and, uh, six acres of land that were there and uh, he had a mink yard and raised mink and dad was a dentist also and uh, so he did his dentistry and also did mink farming on the side and uh, so I really had a, a rural growing up and uh, I, uh, anytime I had to be in the city and I was in the city for all of my schooling, almost all of my schooling and I went to college in Minnesota in the Mississippi breaks near Winona, St. Mary's College. And that was in, um, in kind of in the, all the coolies up in the coolies leading down into the Mississippi River, the breaks there. And so I uh, got to do a little deer hunting, very unsuccessful there. I got one fox during two boat seasons. And uh, and that was the beginning of my uh, serious bow hunting. I again I plinked all the way along during all those years up until I got to college. And uh, Dad also uh, spent a lot of time with me. We shot bows from the time I was a little boy, and and firearms also. And um, we got into uh, building herders bows at one point in time. Uh, Dad. Uh, when herders got going and we got some herders catalogs, Dad uh, was captivated by the idea of, of building some bows. So we built, uh, I'd say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 bows. Uh, we were building them for ourselves and for friends and uh, usually using the herders' kits. And uh, so that got me going in archery. And as I went through college, I realized there were places other than Illinois, and uh, I was in the service uh, Air Force in South Dakota at Rapid City. And uh, while at Rapid City, I also uh, bow hunted a little bit and found out a little bit about the West. And uh, so, uh, and my wife, uh, meanwhile, we hadn't met yet. Uh, well, not in the service, we were married already, but while I was in college, no. And anyway, she wanted to live out west, and I was hankering that way, too. So ultimately, we independently decided on 
Kalispell, Montana. And so that's where we moved to, and I started my practice here. And uh, we were in a hunting and fishing paradise and an outdoor paradise in general. Does that answer that question for you? Oh, yeah. That's that's beautiful country up there. And So you moved up to Kalispell, and uh, how'd you... How'd you go about meeting Paul Schaefer and getting involved with that? Um, well, and in, in, uh, a lot of this is in the book. But anyway, my uh, once in Kalispell, uh, I was, you know, in, in the outdoor, immersed myself in the outdoor life. I, I enjoyed the wilderness, and I had some very wilderness-wise friends that uh, coached me and and working pack horses, um, hunting in mountain country and fishing and whitewater rafting and on and on, all the things that people can enjoy out here. We did them just about all we could. And, uh, so anyway, um, that kind of got us going here. And then, uh, when the kids were young, I, I had, I started them out with simple little fiberglass bows and, um, as they got old enough to hunt, uh, they, it was a time when the compound bows were really just getting going. And I had gone through, uh, long bows with my dad, recurve bows with my dad, got out to Montana. And while I was in college, I had bought a, a bear, uh, Kodiak recurve bow. And I was hunting with that. And, uh, I encountered, uh, a huge muley buck. And uh, shooting instinctively, which I always had done, but never having seen a buck like that before, my arrow passed right between his antlers over his back and uh, sailed on down the mountain. And uh, I thought maybe I would do better if I had a sight where I could put it on something. And so I started using a compound bow with sights. I started out with a browning compound and then uh, went to a Jennings Arrow Star and um, went through the process of adding one doodad after another to the bows and, you know, thinking that would make me a better bow hunter. And at the same time, I got my my boys going. We uh, I had an, my oldest son, uh, oh, at that time was in his early teens, and uh, my son Dave was right around 12 years old, uh, 12 or a little younger. And then we had adopted a Vietnamese son, and I thought all of them needed uh, good bows, so I bought each of them a compound bow, and we all got going that way. And my son Mike, uh, the oldest one, uh, somehow uh, decided that he um, might like a recurve bow instead of uh, the compound bow, and he started messing around uh, shooting my uh, Kodiak in. Uh, after shooting it a while, he um, thought that he'd, he'd like to build his own bow, and so he um, got a uh, old Master Crafters kit and built, uh, started to build a bow, and he was having a little trouble uh, getting what he wanted, and um, so he, at the same time, uh, my son Dave was good friends with Jason Wenzel, a son of Barry Wenzel. Uh, well-known bow hunter and author. And uh, uh, my son, Mike, went over to uh, Barry's house one day to pick up Dave and bring him home for dinner. And Paul Schaefer happened to be at Barry's house visiting with Barry and his wife. And um, Paul was uh, good friends with Barry's son, Jason, also. And um, 
anyway, my my son Mike realized who he he had high high regard for Barry, and loved reading his writings. And and then here in front of him was Paul Schaefer, uh, one of the outstanding bow hunters of the community here, and kind of a legend in his own way. And Mike uh, started talking to him, so feeling very intimidated. And Paul was warm and welcoming, and spent a lot of time talking with Mike and. Uh, Mike then um, thought maybe he'd seek Paul's help in finishing his old master crafter bow, and so he was he was driving at the time. He drove over to uh, Paul's house. Paul was working in the shop, and uh, Mike talked to Paul a little bit, told him what he was up to, and Paul said, "Well, why don't you bring it in?" So he brought the bow in, so Paul could look at where he was, and it was just still parts basically brought brought all the bow parts in, and. Uh, Paul started uh, started him on working on the handle and getting it shaped right. It was a block of walnut wood. And uh, so anyway, uh, they got that shaped the way they wanted it. And uh, then Paul started substituting his laminations and his fiberglass for the stuff that Mike had because he, Paul felt his stuff was better. And little by little, over a few weeks, Paul had, I mean, Mike had uh, uh, basically a, of Schaefer silver tip bow with a uh, old master crafter's handle, and uh, anyway, he uh, he started out hunting with that, and through the process, and my son Dave uh, saw what was possible and had a chance to go with Wenzel's over to Paul's house one day, and then he went over there and talked to Paul about making a bow, and Paul said, "Well, you can, I'll help you build a bow, but you, you're going to have to work it off." And so Dave started working for Paul that way when he was 15 years old. And uh, that became his summer job year after year. And uh, so he spent a lot of time with Paul and learned bow building. Meanwhile, our Vietnamese son, Tien, uh, kind of got to know Paul uh, through Dave. And then Paul helped him build a bow, too. And they, each of them, Paul had them earn their bows and by working in the shop, helping him a little bit with this job and that job, and along the way, they, they learned bow building also, and uh, they had a lot of exposure to a, a very excellent man. Uh, so uh, that's kind of how we crept into Paul's life, and he crept into our life. I, uh, In the meantime, I just add to the story, um, I, Paul Schaefer was, he was a legend in Montana for many reasons. Uh, growing up, he was a superb athlete. He ended up playing football for Montana State University and made himself more of a legend. And, uh, meantime, he was building bows along the way and giving, uh, bows to almost every friend he had. And, um, and at the same time, uh, building up a reputation because of his hunting capabilities. And, um, Along with that, Paul was a bachelor and a very noticeable bachelor, and so there were a lot of stories about his adventures uh, in, in uh, with the ladies and uh, with beer and with this and with that. And so I, I realized, well, my kids are spending a lot of time with this guy. I think I need to get to know him a little better. So I started uh, when when David be at the shop. I uh, I talked my wife into let's make some cookies and I'm going to bring some over there or I'm going to bring a sandwich over for Dave and so on and I get to Paul's shop and they'd both be working away and chit-chatting with each other and and uh, 
I noticed that Paul, a lot of Paul's uh, shop tools needed a little cleaning. There were piles of sawdust here and there, and vacuum system was full of sawdust, and uh, yes, uh, odds and ends needed picking up, tools needed sharpening, and so I started, yeah, could I hang around for a while? I'll clean this up for you, or I'll do this, or I'll do that. And Anyway, uh, then pretty soon uh, I had to be ordering a Schaefer bow, too, and uh, so I uh, got it. I, I paid him half right away, and uh, my birthday ended up uh, when I was going to, when he finished the bow, and I was going to pay him, and he says, no, the second half of the bow is your birthday present. So he gave me half a bow for a birthday present and uh, a, a real nice note with it, thanked me for helping him in the shop and things like that. And that uh, started, uh, you know, a, a, a relationship there, and I found out that even though Paul had uh, his own personal life, he had a, a very different life with my children and was doing a great job as a second dad to them. And uh, naturally, their own father never knows enough, but anybody like Paul Schaefer would know everything. So uh, they come home, and dinner at our house was usually a discussion about Paul Schaefer. I have a daughter, too, named Melissa, and she and Mom uh, thought that they were getting left out of the conversation a lot. And so um, Mom made some rules that uh, from now on we can't talk about hunting and Paul Schaefer at dinner. we got to talk about other things at dinner. And it got really quiet at our dinner table. Nobody had anything to talk about. And so my wife started, she'd come with a list, a mental list that she tried, and she'd tell me ahead of time, tonight we're going to talk about this, this, and this. And that worked for a day or two. And then we were back to Paul Schaefer and hunting again pretty quickly. And so anyway, uh, that's part of that adventure. That's written about a little bit in the, in the book too. So did I prompt so any more questions you in your just, mind here? So you were just snooping over there, making sure he wasn't uh, wasn't drinking beer and heading to the bar with the boys, right? Yeah, and <laughs> what was kind of interesting, you know, there there was that side of Paul, but I think the person that summed it up the best was Rosie Rosalind, and Rosie said in in his lifetime, and he knew Paul from. Uh, indirectly around high school time and then on from there. And their relationship wove in and out over the years, but mostly they were together. And he said over their history together, there were about five different Pauls as he matured. And uh, I, I really got to know, you know, mostly the mature Paul. Playing Paul, how mature are you at 44 years old? Any of us that are a little older than that, uh, no, there's a lot of maturing that we, we need yet as we go through the years. Paul, Paul had matured very much as a man and as a hunter and as a father at that time. And, uh, you know, so Rosie was, and looking back in retrospect and after all the research I did for the book, um, Rosie was 100% right. There were a lot of different Pauls. And so the, a lot of the, Paul legends were about the young Paul, and we all have our uh, our times in our lives where when we've been along the edge of the law or outside the law or, uh, you know, carrying on like our parents didn't want us to and, and things like that. So, you know, I, I, Paul was a man, and he was a human man, and he, uh, you know, he had those years, but the Paul that I got to know had matured far beyond those youthful years. And uh, as a as a father, as a hunter, 
and in in so many ways. And he was a generous, giving person who uh, really did did a lot of things for almost anyone that was in need. He was a good yeah, you man. Could, you could tell from reading your book that he had a lot of regret maybe with his first daughter, it sounded like, you know. But it's, he did. you know, being a athlete like that, college football player, wrestler, all that, you know, I mean. Like I said, it just takes some people a little longer to grow up and being exposed to all those sports and all that stuff and being a wild man. It just sounds like he was a wild man. I, for me, I, I, I was born in 80. So when I, when about the time he passed away, I was, I was always obsessed with bow hunting and, and, uh, Paul Schaefer, I, I grew up wrestling. I didn't play football because it was during hunting season, but, uh, I grew up wrestling and man, I, you know, I think 90. Good for you. 92 was the year I think that Chuck Adams was just about finishing a super slam and and then Paul was the I think was Paul the first or second guy to get the slam a sheep with a bow third third yeah okay. third but it was all within uh, you know not too many days you know yeah yeah uh, there was within, almost like a little bit of a race month, there yeah. and I was like this guy's doing it with a recurve I mean it was just incredible yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, the few stories that he, you know, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of stories written about him till after he passed away. And like, it sounds like in the book, he would, you know, he didn't really, uh, wasn't really for the record books because wasn't really given, you know, credit to the animal as much as he thought. And so you didn't really, I mean, you, you knew about him and you read a few stories here and there, but, uh, it wasn't till after he passed away mm-hmm. that all that stuff really started to come out and. Yeah, didn't, didn't he have a saying where he said the animal grew the or grew these antlers, something up to that uh, retrospect? Uh, pardon me. Didn't, didn't he? Uh, Bob was kind of referring. Did he? He had a statement somewhere where where he uh, had respect for the animals and and thought that the record books, because you know he didn't grow the antlers, the animals put all the hard work into growing them. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. His. Um, at, at first, and you know, almost all of his entries into the record books were when it, were in his early years, his, his post high school years, and uh, and post college years. And then, um, actually, he saw that it was it was more of a competition between men, and Paul felt that the hunt was between him and the animal. And that's uh, something I, I wanted to make a point of. I think that. Uh, and I, I, thinking about this coming up, I, I thought a lot about, you know, the things that made Paul, Paul. And one of them was, uh, you know, and, and Matt, Matt Riley's comment, um, that I put in the book, he was a, a non-competitive competitor. Uh, and he, Paul, uh, he competed with his, himself all the time. He set high standards. And, you know, on a lot of those hunts, if, if there wasn't an animal that satisfied his, whatever his criteria were, he didn't shoot anything. And, uh, you know, I thought about how many guys pile up so many young animals and, uh, Paul was interested more in the experienced animal, the older animal, the outstanding animal in one way or the other. And, and, uh, so he had set goals, mental goals, internal goals that he had to satisfy to make himself happy. He didn't like competing with other people, but, but he would, uh, indirectly because he was in for the best in the hunt. 
and uh, I I um, I had a, a revelation um, this weekend with one of Paul's friends, and um, it involved the one story in the book, and and this is one one of the things that I I, I wish I'd I'd have known it. In its entirety, when I wrote the book, I didn't. I had little, little glitches that weren't there, and it was one of those stories that, in my mind, was kind of questionable. Could this really have happened? And it's when Paul was sitting at a table with someone that he knew, and this guy, and I'm deliberately not mentioning names right now, but this fellow was uh, digging at Paul with some smart remarks. He just stirring him up a little bit. And the guy was a big man, about a six, six or six, seven guy, and uh, a really good athlete. And he was digging into Paul, and Paul politely told him, "I, you know, that's enough. I don't, I don't want any more of that." And the guy kept at it, and Paul grabbed him, and they were across the table from each other, and Paul lifted him over the table, over his head, and threw him across a bar that was behind them. And I couldn't believe that. Uh, uh, was it Bob? You said you were a wrestler? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I wrestled too. And my son Dave wrestled, and I, I've coached wrestling, little kids wrestling. I don't know enough to be a high school coach, but I coached kids wrestling for about 20 years. And, you know, to do something like that, it's it's an immense effort. And this guy had, at that time, had to weigh more than Paul did. And and I couldn't believe it. So I, I went into that skeptically. And there were several other things I did the same way in writing this book. Another one was the long shot at his camera. And this guy uh, that I was talking to verified both of those stories 100%. And um, that Paul actually took this fellow over his head backwards and threw him over the bar. And uh, that uh, that ended the discussion right there. And um, there he didn't have to pound on him or anything else. He was done with that. And that fellow told me it was true because he was a guy that it happened to. <laughs> so and 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 as I said, well, maybe you can answer another question for me. I said, uh, you know, I asked him about that that ninety five yard shot at. Uh, a Nikon camera and, and hitting the, you know, hitting it in the lens, uh, Nikon remote. I'm, 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 I've had a kind of a, a hard couple of days. We've had company and I'm totally worn out. <laughs> My mind's a little bit rough right now, but anyway, uh, approximately a 90 to 100 yard shot at a camera and hitting it through the lens. Um, and he said, that's absolutely true. And I got thinking, uh, after those two things, we're, we're talking about a human being that's on the outer edge of all of us. And, uh, you know, the kind of person that might become a professional athlete, the kind of person that might become an Olympic athlete, the guy who can do just about anything and do it better than most people can do it. And that was Paul. And Paul demanded that of himself all the time. And all these stories that seem outlandish, you know, and, and I had to sort through them real critically. And I'm get, glad now that I was skeptical and that I had to go at it hard. But I can't tell you how comforting it is to find out from somebody who actually was in one of those stories that, yes, this is true. And, uh, you know, I, because I saw it. 
And so it, um, you know, it's comforting me a whole lot. I can go into this a, a whole lot more comfortable talking to people about the book. Yeah, I have a lot of confidence in what's in that book. And again, you can't be right about everything. Nobody can be right about everything, but I worked hard at it and, and I started out not believing Paul could be as good as all the stories were, but there's a lot of, a lot of truth in the legend. That's for sure. Well, you did a fine job. We had, we had Scott Kelzer on and, uh, we got some stories out of him when we had him on the podcast and he told us the story about lifting up the Volkswagen to change the tire. <laughs> okay. <he> there. <laughs> and, uh, did he tell you about the pool table? No. Well, I had that story. So I heard that story before too, and I uh, also I, I didn't know how it could be possible. Well, he told me that story again last weekend, and uh, they were at uh, a pool parlor, and it was a slate pool table, a mighty heavy slate pool table, and uh, some guys were goofing around, drinking too much, and lifting at it, and you know wh- whoever could get it off the ground, that was a big deal, and and Scott said that, you know, it's kind of my turn, so I thought I'd give it a try. And Scott got both hands under it and hefted it up sort of like you do a curl with a barbell, lifted it up on one end. This is up about, he said, close to, you know, his bottom of his ribcage between his belly button and his chest. And and then Paul's turn, Paul turned sideways, and with one arm, he took it at the corner, and lifted it up and got it higher than his shoulder, just lifted that table, just, you know, hit one end of that table up higher than his shoulder with one arm. And Scott said, and Scott was a strong guy, and Scott said he did it with two hands. So, yeah. Scott's, uh, Scott's yeah. a giant. Scott's like six, what did, what did he say, was six, seven or something? He's a big I, I think big he guy. is, yeah. That's about where I'd put him. And he is the poor guy, you know, do you know about his injuries? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. falling out of a tree stand. Yeah, well, he's he's just had what the doctors consider is the last possible surgery on his hip. If he injures it again, uh, he's they're going to have to rebuild his pelvis. And and Scott said, I'm not sure I want to go through that. And the doctor said, we're not sure we want to go through that. But so he's he's being very careful about healing this upright. But they had a go in, I think he's had five surgeries on that fractured pelvis already and hip replacements and so on, and they had to replace the socket, the whole thing again, the whole uh, complex, and it's the biggest one they have. So uh, he he can't do it again, and Scott is, uh, I think he's right at 69 now, some, somewhere right around there. Uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully he goes up well. We need to, we need to call oh, him and I get know. back on. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, and he's he's just a great guy, and uh, you know I I think a lot of him. And I asked him uh, about his friendship with Paul, how how long it went on. I knew they were I knew they were friends, and he said it was just their whole as long as Paul lived, they were friends. So he said we had our ups and downs, but we were friends all the way through. So yeah. cool. So did you ever uh, get a chance to shoot arrows with Paul? I did. Uh huh. I, the, the funniest thing is right when Paul was getting ready for going to Africa for his Africa hunt, he had built the African bow. And I, I'm, Dave's remembering and I'm remembering, I think it was 86 pounds. Paul's sister Joan 
was thinking it was in the 90s, 92, 93. She thought it had to be over 90 to uh, uh, fit the African regulations. And Africa really didn't have any regulations at that time. They were testing um, bow hunters. Uh, and uh, they had asked uh, uh, Ted Jaycox from Florida, have you ever heard of him or talked to him at all? Uh-uh. Ted Jaycox, he's an outfitter in Florida, and he was shooting a 100-pound bow at that time. And uh, I think uh, it was a Black Widow. I'm not sure, but I think it was a Black Widow, and it was uh, a 100-pound bow. He had uh, triple uh, arrow shafts, one inside the other. I wrote about this in the book, too, and uh don't remember the numbers exactly, but three aluminum arrows, one inside the other to get a spine heavy enough to deal with that bow. And uh, Paul had that 86-pound bow. And anyway, he had it ready to go. And uh, Dave and I stopped at his house. And uh, he, he said, let's go out and shoot. And we went out and we were shooting. And Paul had, uh, there were three bales of straw. And he had uh, strapping material. He had a you know, steel strap, two steel straps around them. So they were bound very tightly and made a good backstop for the arrows. And he liked the, he put an, an empty arrow shaft in the ground in front of the uh, target, about, you know, a foot or two in front of it, and then put an empty pop can on top of it and shoot at the pop can. And uh, so that was the target. And, and you know, we were, we were shooting. Well, Paul, was, he was deadly. There's no question about it. My son Dave is way better than I am, and Dave wasn't anywhere in Paul's uh, league at all. But, uh, you know, ups and downs over the years, you have times when you're better and times when you're not, but they're both better, better men than I am. And anyway, uh, Paul, um, you know, shot, he was shooting that heavy bow and he said, you want to try it out? I said, sure. And, uh, I, uh, I, yeah, I, I had a shooting glove on, and so I, I just took the bow and started to draw it back and I got about half draw. And it wasn't going any further. And, uh, you know, I said, oh, this is really, really fun, Paul. I just want you to just take it and shoot. You know, I, I wasn't getting anywhere with it. And he, uh, and this has been confirmed too. When Paul would, uh, check the tiller on his bows, he'd at, basically at arm's length out in front of him so he could see it better. He would pull with his right hand to the right on the string, pull to the right, and and hold the bow handle with his left hand, pushing that out to the left. And uh, he'd watch how the limbs were working as he stretched it out. So uh, most of us can, you know, especially a heavy bow, barely, you know, draw it in, in proper form. And Paul could do it sideways without any trouble at all. Anyway, that that 86-pound bow and they did testing the first uh, Cape Buffalo bull, a uh, cow that they killed. Uh, Ted Jaycox got that cow and uh, they set it up to where they could shoot arrows into it from like 10 yards away um, and see, uh, test the penetration. And I've seen the video of that. They videoed it too. And the Paul's arrows, everyone penetrated roughly six to eight inches deeper than Ted's did. And, um, their uh, Ted's arrows almost all stopped in the cow paw, had some through and through that didn't shoot all the way out, but they were poked out the other side. And uh, he had a double shafted arrow 
Uh, but Dave knows, I, I forget now, I think he was shooting 22 19s with a 19-16 or something inside, whatever would slip inside of it tightly, and then he'd swage the ends. Um, and I'm sorry I'm rusty on those figures now. It's been a long time since I wrote that part of the book. Anyway, uh, Paul, uh, you know, he uh, he had his bow better tuned, and, and he said, I knew that if I had a better tuned bow, uh, that my 86-pound bow would perform as well as Ted's 100-pound bow, and it did. It performed better, absolutely, because the arrows weren't wobbling in the air as they went toward the target, and Ted's just weren't spined quite right for the for the heavy bow that he had. Now, do you but know, did anyway, Paul shoot just purely instinctively? He did. Yeah, yeah he'd, uh, and, and what was interesting, he, he'd draw, he'd always draw, to his ear, and then he'd settle forward to the corner of his mouth, and he anchored, um, and he was uh, two fingers below, one above, and he anchored right at about his canine tooth, and it was the same place every time he pressed into his face, and uh, and it was it was instinctive. It's, it was fast. You know, he'd anchor, but that arrow was gone then. Uh, so, you know, it, was, it wasn't any messing around. So he would overdraw and then settle in? Overdraw and settle in whenever he had time. And he, I, you know, I didn't watch him when he was hunting. I did was with him very little. The only time I actually saw Paul shooting at an animal was on uh, the time he took Dave and I antelope hunting. And, um, he had, uh, that was not at an animal then, uh, I'm trying to think. He shot an insulator at that time, and I got to watch him do that. And uh, I watched him shooting at his shot. Did I see? I'm trying to think if I ever saw him shoot at an animal, and I don't think I did. Um, so, but anyway, his, his but his, his shooting was once he was at anchor, boom, it was just gone. There was no messing around. Swaged aluminum. Go ahead. You don't you don't see swaged aluminum aluminums very often anymore. And did he and run I, veins year round or just me? for foul? Did he run the vein uh, setup year round or did just for the foul weather? Year round. That's year all round. he shot. I made him numerous arrows just as gifts with feathers, and he'd test them, and that was it. You know, he'd just keep them sitting around, and that was you know he was just being polite by keeping them. I think, uh, and but he always used the plastic veins. All the time. And Dave does on and off. Dave will mix them. He'll shoot arrow feathers a lot of the time, and then he'll shoot plastic veins other times. And I I don't know if it was you, James, that told me. Someone just told me recently that there are, uh, I think you did, uh, there are some now some veins being made that are, uh, they act like feathers a lot more. Yeah. Softer. A- yeah, AAE put out a soft uh vein that shoots like a feather. I haven't tried them yet, but uh, the reports are sounding positive. Mm-hmm. But Paul used that elevated rest um, for the uh, I mean, just because of the fletchings. Uh, right. Go ahead. Uh, do, do you know what uh, um, it was probably in the book? I'm the dingbat that hasn't had a chance to read the book yet, but I definitely will be. Um, but do you know what Loser. Rod... Broadhead loser. I'm the loser. Uh, what what broadhead Paul preferred? He liked the black diamond, uh, Zwicky black diamond uh, Eskimo. 
and he shot four blades almost all the time. When he went to the Cape Buffalo, he shot two blades. And he files, he never went beyond file sharpening. He'd, he'd file, uh, sharpen with a, a mill bastard file and then finish it with a, uh, you know, a finer tooth file. But that was as far as he went. He had a file sharpened edge. Uh, and, uh, like my, my friend Matt Riley, who shot a lot with Paul and hunted some with Paul, um, he, uh, always hones his with ceramic. Uh, hone afterwards. He uses the black diamond Eskimos also all the time, almost all the time. He'll use deltas once in a while. That's and, awesome. Uh, and uh, uh, one thing on that book that I I did never know about was sounded like he really liked moccasins to wear when he was when he was on the sneak. He did in in that the, the book about uh, I mean the story about Johnny that where when Paul killed his silver tip grizzly, he named the bow after. Uh, that's when he was introduced to the moccasins and, uh, Paul started using them then. And whenever they'd get close to an animal, he'd take off his shoes and put on the moccasins and finish the stock. And, uh, Johnny was a Cree and Paul, after that hunt or after the hunts he did with Johnny, uh, and probably it started with that hunt, he'd have some of the natives up there make him moccasins and send them down to him and he had uh, a bunch of them in a bag in his there's a little attic in his shop and uh kind of a loft and anyway there was a bag a shopping bag paper shopping bag full of them up there and some of them were even beaded so he had beaded moccasins and he had record regular ones and they were kind of came up uh, a little over your ankle a little over ankle high with thongs on them and you tie you crush crisscrossed over your ankle and then tied them and a lot of them were worn through on the soles, so he had worn them plenty. And um, anyway, anyway, he gave uh, he gave me a couple of the worn out pairs, and he gave some to David. And what was interesting, uh, Paul was real close friends with a guy named Dave Gustafson, and Dave was killed. Uh, he was a, if I'm remembering right, a paramedic. Uh, but a, a flight nurse or a paramedic, and he was killed in a, uh, a rescue operation, a crashed plane. And uh, his brother Gary got to know Paul. He played football with Paul, uh, Gary Gustafson. And when I interviewed Gary, uh, Gary said, I've got to show you something. And he went in the house and got a pair of those moccasins and brought them out. And they were identical to the ones Paul had in his shop. He said, Paul gave me these. So Paul was even giving moccasins to some of his friends. And, uh, and he, uh, he, most of his stocking was done with them. And Paul was, he, he was an incredible long shot shooter. And, um, but, and Bob Savage said this. I interviewed Bob, uh, extensively one day. And, uh, I've talked to him two times on the phone since I sent him a book too, right after I got him finished and just to get his stamp of approval on it too. And anyway, Bob, um, at that time, uh, well, at the interview had told me that, they practiced, and he had practiced a lot with Paul. They practiced a lot at 100 yards. And he said, uh, so anywhere along the way, we knew where that arrow was going to be instinctively. He said, so we could shoot instinctively out to those ranges and hit a stake that was in the ground consistently at 80 to 100 yards. It just wasn't a big deal. And so when Paul pulled off those long shots, it's something he was just used to doing, and he had done it a lot. 
and I, Bob, Bob Savage, uh, you know, I, I, he's just trusted and respected by everybody I know. And I, I found no, no reason not to believe every word that he said. And, uh, he, he's just a very knowledgeable man. And so, uh, you know, when stuff like that comes from him and I, you know, I, I really respect it. And, uh, so that long shooting and he said, Paul, all of his early animals, he was long shooting, and then it got to where he got better and better and better at stalking. Then the the stalk and getting as close as he could meant a lot more to him than taking the long shots. So whenever he could, he was getting close to them. And, uh, you know, so in the evolution of a hunter, again, uh, and uh, Paul, you know, again, Paul evolved along the way, just like all of us do. Yeah, Bob, Bob Savage sounds like an awesome dude. And from reading your book, I also learned he's a plumber, which is probably oh. so awesome. Oh, we're going to have to get him on. <laughs> There's a lot of bow hunting plumbers out there. I'm a I'm a plumber, kind of. We're semi-retired. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's funny to hear here about the plumbers. He, he quit building bows, go back to plumbing, so. So was yeah, was and Dave? He did, but he, he kept building bows, though. You know, as a, a more of a hobby after that, he didn't quit completely. He kept kept going, and uh, he had some relatively recent ones. When I interviewed him, when I talked to him recently, I, I didn't on the phone. I didn't find out if he's still making them once in a while. It sounded like he had backed off quite a bit. But I do want to, in case I do do another book. I, I want to uh, I, I want to spend several days with him because he's just a wealth, an encyclopedic wealth of knowledge on on bow hunting and on archery. He's just amazing. Uh, was Dave, your son, building bows under Paul all the way till uh, we lost Paul, or was there a gap in there and then he picked it up, or what? How was that transition? Um, Dave. Again, he started at about 15, right before uh, he had his driver's license. And, and, and thank the Lord, you know, we were driving him down there. My wife and I were taking turns. She'd bring him down or I'd bring him. She'd bring him down. I'd pick him up, generally how it was when he was working at, at Paul's during the week. And uh, and then during that, by summertime, he had his driver's license. So he was taking care of himself, driving back and forth. Because it was about a half hour to 40 minute drive, more like 40 minutes to get from our house to Paul's house. And so Dave worked. He also had summer jobs uh, for the Forest Service uh, during high school and college, mostly college. And uh, so he started working for Paul. Uh, building that bow and then he would go after school whenever he wasn't in a sport and he refused to play football because it interfered with hunting season and to Dave hunting was far more important than football and uh, but Dave wrestled during the winter season and then spring season he did track but it was more uh, more time spent at Paul's shop again and then in summer so it was a year-round relationship with uh, without any major gaps but uh, and and with a constant relationship going on but not a full-time employment except in the summertime when he didn't have the other jobs and he'd go on weekends you know if he worked during the week for the Forest Service weekends he'd be over at Paul's most of the time he did a lot of that, and that went on until he was till Paul died. Dave graduated in 1990 from high school, and uh, he had 
two and a half years in at uh, at Oregon when uh, he he wrestled for them one year and then he started having trouble. He had two ruptured discs in his neck from uh, sophomore year high school wrestling, and it started to aggravate him again in college. And so uh, the orthopedic surgeon that he was going to said, you can end up a, a paraplegic or a quadriplegic if you keep doing this. And he said, it'd be a good idea if you want the rest of your life to, to give up the wrestling. And so Dave did that. And that was uh, that was before, but not long before Paul died. And when um, when Paul died, um, it was a shock to all of us. My our son Tin was actually renting uh, Paul's basement, living there, and uh, he had gone on his own at that time. And uh, Dave was uh, at, away at college, and, and whenever he was home, weekends or vacations, he'd be at Paul's again, working there. And uh, he just loved being with Paul. And anyway, uh, when Paul died, Dave came home immediately and um, he and Matt Riley and I can helped a little bit uh, worked in Paul's shop to finish up the orders that were uh, left things that were half done and needed finishing. And Dave kind of guided the rest of us in what we were doing. And uh, then he'd go back to school for the, his classes for a week and then back home on the weekend to work at Paul's again. And that went on for about a month and uh, Dave, uh, driving home from Paul's house one night, uh, Dave said, Dad, I've got to talk to you. And I said, what's up, Dave? And he said, I don't see college taking me where I want to go. He said, I, uh, you know, wrestling, he said, I can't do it anymore. And it wasn't fun in college anyway. It was more fun in high school. And then I, I, he was studying science. I, he was thinking about going into dentistry and then orthodontics. And it just wasn't for him. He said, no matter what, Dad, when I'm through with college, I will be working with my hands. I love working with my hands. And I said, Dave, if that's what makes you happy, that's what you need to do. You do what's going to make you happy. And uh, he said, well, then I want to buy Paul's business and take it over. And so then he talked to Paul's family and uh, a banker about getting a loan. And then he got the loan to buy Paul's business and took it over from there. And he stayed with it ever since. Yeah, he built some incredible bows. Incredible. Well, thank you. Yeah, I got to tell a little story. I went to back when I was, oh, 15 or 16. So this is probably 96 or something. And, uh, Went back to a cousin of mine, got married in North Dakota, and on the way back, I rode with another cousin of mine so we could tour Montana and take our way home, or time on the way home, you know. So we stopped through Missoula, went to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and and that Screaming Eagle was in Missoula there at the time. And, uh-huh. you know, even back then, you couldn't find a recurve, and, you know, none of the archery shops really had any of that stuff, me being infatuated with Paul Schaefer. We went in there, and man, there was just a line of trad bows, just a whole wall of them, and there was a silver tip in there, and I was, man, it had the checkered grip and everything, and oh, I'll never forget that. I picked that thing up. I couldn't hmm. do it. I was a poor kid. <laughs> it was it was awesome, and yeah, we've hounded Dave several times, talked to Beth. We're trying to get him to come on here, but uh, he won't do it, so... 
Um, we got his dad even better, so. Well, I, I don't think it's even better because Dave <laughs> could answer the blank spots I've been giving you every now and then, and I and I know he could. Uh, and I I will work on him. I'd, I'd like him to do that, and I, I think it would be a good exercise for him. But I, in the in talking about the bows and and Dave's abilities, um, our family, uh, both on my wife's side and on my side. There's there's art all over the place. My dad was a wood he was a dentist and a woodcarver and uh, did that all the time. My mom was a painter. My my wife's mother taught painting, uh, you know, art art in high school, and uh, also did some artwork on her own. My wife still teaches art, and uh, you know, so it. And Judy's dad was my wife's dad was a shop. Uh, shop instructor, shop teacher, and had really good woodworking skills. So, you know, it, it's coming at him hard from both sides. And uh, every, every one of our children is artistic in one way or another. And back to Paul for a minute, uh, Paul and Bob Savage worked a lot on the design of the bows. And I Something I've been thinking, if I do write another book, I'd like to get a little more into the history of the recurve bow and more current history. Uh, we all know, or we don't all know, but anyway, the ancient history of the recurve bow, it deserves some attention, most certainly. But, uh, you know, there was a guy in our area here named Jack Whitney. And Jack built, they were sort of like the, the old bear magnums. They're real short bulls. Jack was a big man, probably 6'4", 6'5", powerful. He was a logger and, uh, you know, uh, just a hard-living kind of guy and very strong. And he, he probably, in his lifetime, that's when you could shoot, you could buy a mountain goat license over the counter here at that time. And he got something like 11 or 13 mountain goats consecutively up in this one uh, area above Big Fork, Montana, where he used to hunt all the time. And Jack built his own bows, and Bob Savage learned his skills from Jack Whitney. And Bob's going to know who Jack, who taught Jack how to do it, if anybody taught Jack how to do it. But anyway, they were, they, you know, they were building recurve bows from the beginning of modern recurve bows. And um, anyway, Paul then learned from Bob Savage and his own experimentation and so on. Um, and uh, remind me to tell you about Paul's first bow form, if I forget, by rambling on and on and into another story. But anyway, the design of the silver tip bow is, you guys know, it's a, it's a high-performing bow. And uh, Paul is almost 100% responsible for that. Dave uh, has honored Paul by staying with that design and, and he's making subtle improvements in it with materials you know paul didn't have the epoxies that dave has now he didn't have the fiberglass that dave has now uh, he didn't have carbon fiber you know so there's there's the things that have come along that can be applied to the bows that make them perform a little bit better but the basic design is paul's and he improved on what bob savage had taught him and Bob helped him get to where he got. And then Paul was starting into more artistic work. He had a guy named Charlie Cooter uh, who has passed away, but Charlie was doing his checkering. Charlie was uh, confined to a wheelchair but did superb uh, checkering. 
And so Paul used him for the checkering on the bows of his era. Dave um, learned from Charlie, taught Dave, and Dave, uh, because Charlie knew he was checking out, and uh, Dave took over, so Dave does the checkering now. And Dave can do his own carving, and he can do his own scrimshaw, and those kinds of things, just because he's got that kind of artistic talent. So his addition to the silver tip is keeping up with modern materials and um, the art artistic end of things, the, the finishing details that Paul, uh, you know, people look at a, the one Paul did, and, well, it's not as refined as ones they did, but I've asked Dave about that, and he said, Dad, if Paul was here right now, because of competition, Paul would be doing the very same thing I'm doing right now. He He'd want to be at the best at everything he was producing, you know, just the way Paul was. And so, you know, and Dave's the first person to stand up for Paul, and uh, I, I have to respect him so highly for honoring him, and I try not to be too much of a dad when I talk about Dave, but I'm immensely proud of him, as both as a man and as a bow builder and as a hunter. He's just, he's a good guy. Yeah, it sounds like uh, he did a heck of a job raising those boys, and uh, I know I, t- oh, I actually... Hell. <laughs> a long story short, but I actually ended. I talked to Mike probably oh fifteen years ago or something. I drew a Utah deer tag that he had had a few years previous, and I got his number. Uh, and I called him, and at that time, I was shooting a compound. I was I went back and forth for I don't know ten or ten or so years or longer as a kid, and and uh, we got to talking about you know. Paul Schaefer and hey, you shooting a recurve and I felt like such a I'm like oh no you know <laughs> but uh, I probably talked to him for an hour hour or so about hunting he seemed like a heck of a good guy too just so you don't feel too bad Mike fluctuates back and forth now between compounds and recurves <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> oh, so you can rub it in his face uh, next funny. time you see him oh <laughs> uh, that uh, was uh, on the up on the book cliffs yep yep. I was with Mike when he got that deer, and uh, so was Dave. And um, anyway, that's when nine eleven happened. Okay. And we were up, we were up there, you know, campfire at night, laying back, looking at the stars, watching planes land in Salt Lake City, and watching uh, the satellites go by, and the occasional shooting star. And uh, that was the first night. The second night, there were no planes in the sky. We couldn't figure out what was going on. And then we ran into some hunters up there who found a point where they could get cell phone contact out. And we found out what happened that day. And uh, so we were we were up there at that time. So that must be about the time you were, well, you were talking to Mike after that happened. Yeah, correct? yeah, like, a, I don't know, two yeah. or three years later. So, yeah, probably 15 years ago or so. yeah. And Mike, uh, yeah, Mike's a good guy too. He, and a good hunter. He's a, they're, they're both way better hunters than I ever dreamed of being. They're, they're good. <laughs> well, heck, you, you, you raised them in Montana, so. <laughs> that, that helped a lot. They didn't have much of a choice. And it's really funny. They'll, every now and then something will bring it up because they dad, Thanks for bringing us to Montana. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you ever take them to Chicago and be like, "See, this is what it could have been like." <laughs> I just had to go through there about two weeks ago. My wife and I did a road trip, and we got we we were going to take a ferry boat across Lake Michigan, 
place, and there was the boat with the reservations were all filled up when we called. And so, oh darn it! And that was um, that was just the day before. We should have done it sooner, but we didn't know where we'd be. So anyway, okay, we'll just drive around the south end of Lake Michigan, and oh my goodness, we hit rush hour, and it took six hours to go from just north of Chicago to the other end, getting out and going into Indiana and Michigan. We were heading over to Michigan. Oh, it was a nightmare. So I'm glad I'm not. I'll thank me for coming over to Montana, too. (laughs) Yeah, we played a little phone tag. When I finally caught you, you were out shooting carp. Uh, Every time I I get a hold of uh, calls or any of you guys out there uh, living the, the high life in Montana, out doing something outdoors, it's awesome. I have to tell you what happened after that phone call. Um, half of it, we, we ended up with 41 of us over there, you know, emerging a, a, a of probably three bigger families, uh, all there together, families and friends. And a bunch of the younger ones found a, a bay that had, it had a kind of a, it neck down to, to where it joined the reservoir. And there were a squadron of carp in there spawning. And once those, there were, there were about eight of them or eight or ten, eight or ten bull fishermen there and, um, girls and guys. And they realized they could block off the outlet, which they did. They, they put four of them standing there with their bows in the outlet and the rest of them went into those carp and they got, they were shooting them with arrows. They were throwing them out of the water with their hands. It was like Custer's last stand. It was just <laughs> unbelievable. And and they had somewhere around 45 carp piled on the bank by the time they were done cleaning out that pocket. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, and I didn't get to see it, so they somebody videoed it with their cell phone, so we got to watch it on video, and it was, uh, it was unbelievable. Uh, yeah, man. so that carp shoot was a good one. That sounds like a good, yeah, a good time. Well, before we let you go, you brought up something about a a, a bow press that we we wanted to hear bow form, yeah, bow form. Um, back when my dad and I were, and I I I wrote this in the book too. But when my dad and I were, well, dad got me going on building recurve bows, and we got had a herder's catalog and got everything we needed and. uh built the form according to their directions. And, you know, it was the shape of a one-piece recurve bow. And you drove nails along the sides, and then you'd put, you'd glue up all, all the laminations in the handle, put it all together, and then lace an, an inner tube strips back and forth from nail to nail all the way along the form, and then let the glue cure, and then you'd cut, you know, grind the bow down to where you wanted it, shape it. And anyway... Um, we had a couple of those forms around for years and I, you know, never, um, after that period in my life, I never used them again. And, uh, when I interviewed Paul's mother, so this was just when I got started going on the book, I, um, went over to their farm and we were, you know, I spent a couple hours we were just interviewing in in the house and then the sun got low enough to work cooled off outside she said let's go outside for a while we went outside and, and sat down and the interview went on and and then she says oh i have to show you something and she brought me over to their shop uh, it's a big quonset hut and then in the office of the shop she had 
a bull form up on the wall over the desk. I'm sitting on a couple nails, and it was identical to the bull forms that my dad and I built. It was it had the nails driven in along the sides, and she had, in memory of Paul, she had woven. This was in 2004. He died in 93. So anyway, 11 years later, and she had woven a garland of flowers, uh, plastic flowers, in and out over that whole thing. And she said, take take it down if you'd like to. I said, I'd love to take that down. I did, and I got some pictures of it too. But but anyway, and then she apologized. She said, I'm sorry it's so dusty, and I'm sorry that all those flowers are on there. But it, it means a lot to me. And I said, this means a lot to me too. You know, I took it down and took pictures, and she said, I'll go in and make some supper. And she went in and worked on supper, and I got some nice pictures of it and then put it, you know, put things back together and put it up for her again. And I had totally forgotten about the bull forms that I had, uh, that dad and I had until I was writing about it. And it dawned on me then that about the same time we were doing that stuff, Paul was doing that stuff. He's, he's six years younger than I am. So he probably was doing it a little later than we did, but not too much. And, uh, you know, so he started the same way with the primitive methods like that and evolved into the, the stuff that he was doing in his, in his last days. And it, it just, uh, the whole sequence of the process started going together. And uh, and I, I wrote about that in in the book, and then how how uh, Bob Savage, you know, he gradually worked into with Bob Savage, and they were using you know fire hoses that you'd pressurize with air, and that that would uh, between uh, the top and the bottom of the form would compress your stuff, and you get a uniform pressure. All of ours had you know thick spots of glue and thin spots of glue, and you you both were set up to break in those days just because of the methods of making them. But, um, you know, as the guys learned those steps going through them, bowls got better and better and better. And uh, look what we have now. You know, it's just amazing. Well, I mean, we could talk forever and tell a bunch of Paul Schaefer stories, but we want these guys to buy this book and read it that you spent so much time (laughs) writing. So, uh, you know, we appreciate, like I said, you know, at the beginning of this, when I called, uh, you know, I was one of those guys that that was waiting for this book for 25 years, and everything. Every time something would come up on it, I'd, is this guy ever going to write the book? I mean, come on! But uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, if you read the book, you'll understand why it took Bob here so long to get it done. He had to learn to be a writer, and there was a lot of stuff going on in Paul's family that. Uh, that'll be explained in the book and and uh for a young guy, younger guy and the, a lot of younger guys that will listen to this podcast it's it's uh it's awesome you wrote a book about you know the man that I grew up kind of in the bow hunting world looking up to and and uh I think a lot of guys a lot of the younger guys need to get this and read it and you know it kind of takes you back to what hunting's about what it's supposed to be about the uh the adventure, man. I mean, that that kind of sums it up. So, so thanks yeah. for take, I, taking the time. And uh, sorry for all those uh, things I was saying while you were taking forever. <laughs> no problem. Um, you know, another thing I, I would kind of appreciate if you would hit Paul's, um, and, and we didn't hit it much in our talk right now, but his dedication to children was amazing. You know, and it showed up with 
my children, with Barry Wenzel's children, with Paul's own siblings' children, and um, other kids that showed up along the way, other guys that were young that he inspired. Um, and I, I think that one of his strongest points, and maybe it was just at that stage in his life, but he, like the day he was out antelope hunting with Dave and I, first he made sure that he helped Dave to his antelope and he helped Dave get his first elk. And uh, by teaching him the right way to do things and the mentoring was amazing. And you don't have to be a Paul Schaefer to be a mentor to young hunters, but Amen. we're needing, we're needing a new generation of guys that are going to come out and girls too. Uh, there's a lot of girls now taking it up and, and, and brave enough to go hunting. And I think that, um, you know, as, as much as you can inspire or I can inspire the younger generation of hunters to take up the torch and, and start coaching younger kids in Whatever our skills are, building arrows, building bows, how to hunt, how to hunt whitetails, how to hunt carp, whatever it is, get them out there having fun. I think it's, uh, and Paul, he had a knack for that and he cared about the young people enough to teach them how to build bows, take his time and do that. And I think Paul, I was just talking to my friend Matt Riley about this the other day and Matt's another guy. I, I, if, if you, if you have time, I'll talk about him a little bit. But um, Matt um, had a young family like mine at that stage, younger than mine, same age as his son Hunter, basically. And Paul coached, spent a lot of time with those kids too. But um, he was learning at the same time without being a parent. He was a parent, but he wasn't a father and didn't have a chance to be a father yet. He was learning fathering along the way. And he, I think he hungered for the family. He had a strong family. And somewhere in his young man years, he lost that for a while. And he was he was really reaching for it, I think, in his last years. He was wanting to settle down. He was wanting a mother for Hunter. And uh, he was being a, a superb father to so many kids and coaching them in their sports. You know, he, he, he was videoing my children in their sports. He was videoing uh, Wenzel kids in their sports. And so, you know, his uh, his commitment to children was growing, and it got cut off at the wrong time, I think. Um, and uh, he he was ready to give that much to, uh, to sports. And I think um, talking to Matt Riley, and it's a guy you might want to interview, he's hunted Africa probably 12 or 14 times, around that many times, and... Uh, he hunts all over the place. He just got back from he got a beautiful muskox and uh he just hunted everywhere and done done it all. And uh Matt is along the way he's been a great father, a great man, uh he's a, a good friend and he was very close with Paul also. And um anyway, uh he'd be a, a great guy for you guys to interview and I'm thinking about uh 
tackling another book now. Rosie's been trying to get me to do it, and, and I, I was thinking about it anyway, but more about I, about the hunting adventures, uh, and not about a one person, but uh, about a lot of young hunters that are doing well right now. And not so much in the killing, but the the values of the hunt. They do they do well in their hunting and, and killing too. But Matt's experiences with the sand bushmen are, are incredible. His experiences with the Eskimos are incredible. I've had some contacts up in uh, Northwest Territory with the uh, basically the Crees and uh, and uh, base the Crees and the Dene and. Uh, there's so much richness in getting to hunt at the level of these, uh, I'm going to say primitive, but they're not, but primitive hunters, the guys that have been doing it for thousands of years and are still doing it very similar to how they did it then. And, uh, you know, just their lifestyles and things like that. And I, I think that sharing that part of the hunt would be important too, but also bringing children into it is, is important. And so if you can stress Paul's, uh, you know, what he gave to the younger generations, I think that's really important for all of us to consider right now. Well, yeah, for sure. We can all Just, do it. <clears throat> he definitely helped me with my addiction to bow hunting and look at, look at the course he took just in your own family, you know? And, yeah, uh, exactly. It's, it's it's awesome. I mean, there's there's uh, incredible people out there you meet along the way, and they're special. Yeah. And he was definitely one of them. It sounds like he was he was definitely one of them. Yes, sir. Man, he sounded like he was bigger than life. And uh, I can't wait to read the book. I'm gonna get myself a copy. I've got some uh, got some hunts planned this summer and fall, and. I could use some extra reading material, so I'm gonna when we get off here, I'm gonna have to get myself a copy coming, and I can't wait to read it. Uh, why don't you tell us all where uh, everyone can find a, their copy? I'll send you a copy. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, yeah. for, the li- for the listeners, where okay. where can they, where can they buy a copy of the book? Um, through Dave and Beth's website, SaferSilverJipos.com, I believe is what it is. That's, I don't even know what it is exactly, but SaferSilverJipos.com. SaferSilverJipos.com. Perfect. And, uh, that's a good way to start. We're, um, uh, traditional bow hunter is going to do a book review on it and it'll probably, Dave Tesla has it right now and it'll probably come out this fall. And, uh, I, I write currently to try to keep things under control. We're trying to do it basically through Dave and Beth and then, uh, and, uh, Jaffer Silvertip. And then, um, when things slow down, then I'll try to look at other avenues for doing it too. But, uh, it's, it's been, it's been keeping, at first it was crazy, uh, crazy busy and, and it settled down to a, a steady, uh, you know, uh, a few books per day. It, listening to you talk is just a huge reminder of why traditional bow hunting is so awesome because of the core values and family that uh, is so deeply rooted. Um, you know, just everybody, when you go to these bow shoots, when you make friends, when we do these interviews, um, there's more to it. It's not just uh, going out and getting your elk for the year. Um, it, there's just a, uh, a lot to it. It's just so awesome. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Bob. And thank you very much, too. We want to thank the listeners once again. We wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you guys. 
Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. It really helps. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever your favorite podcasts are played. You can also listen to the podcast on tradquest.com. Send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. And always, keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight.